0: On helping us figure out and do stuff. <laughs> Listen, how's everybody doing out there? Good? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, we're going to be div- doing one verse today. That's it, one verse. So I would say it's going be a shorter message, but only one verse. Listen, while Jesus was doing his greatest work, he uttered his greatest words. Through the excruciating pain of uh, a tormenting death, he gave the most meaningful statements worthy of a lot of careful consideration. John records. Three of Jesus' seven statements on the cross. The sixth one, perhaps the most helpful, is the one I want to consider today. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dig in. God, thank you for this time we have together. Thanks for those that are here, interested in your word and your truth, um, and maybe even in uh, your wanting to change us somehow. So we pray that you would descend in this place, uh, stir among us, Reveal to us what you want us to hear this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, uh, back in London, he was a pastor of a church for 38 years. Uh, But he developed also, while he was doing uh, that job, he developed a pastor's college, right? He believed that getting young men in ministry uh, up to speed uh, and to teach them how to do extemporaneous preaching. That is, you give them a text, and they're ready at any moment right? Get on their feet, powered by the Holy Spirit, to just preach. (laughs) So often in his midweek studies, here's what he would do. He would find a sheet of paper, he'd write a scripture on it, and he would just hand it to one of the students before the evening service. One midweek service, he scribbled Luke 19, story of Zacchaeus, on a sheet of paper, and handed it to one of the young college students. The only time he had to prepare was just about, you know, the four songs we did on the stage, right? A few songs, and then the walk up to the stage, right, Uh, for the pulpit. How intimidating would that be, especially with Spurgeon dubbed by many as the prince of preachers sitting in the first row looking up at you. So at the appointed time, the student climbs up the stairs to the pulpit and said this. The text I've been given to preach on this evening is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, the story of Zacchaeus. And like our eloquent pastor has taught us so well, I have three points to bring to bear on this passage. Point number one, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, just like I am, a wee little man. (laughs) Point number two, Zacchaeus was up a tree, just like I am, up a tree. Point number three, the Lord looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. And I feel that that's what the Lord is telling me to do. And he scampered off the pulpit immediately to the delight and applause of the congregation. He was pretty clever and made an impression. But as impressive as that was, I think the greatest pulpit ever constructed was the two pieces of wood joined together to form a cross. Because things that Jesus said while hanging on that cross may have been the greatest sermon ever preached. He gave seven short statements, but those statements had monumental ideas, monumental thoughts about forgiveness and provision and salvation. We find that sixth statement in our text today in John chapter 19, verse 30. It's on the screen. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. A hmm. little video I showed at the beginning kind of really gets at the point about how hard it is to get things done, how many steps it takes to finish a simple task, and uh, what kind of dedication is often required in order to take on a larger project. I don't know about you and your life and your organizational skills, but for me just to read, it is finished brings a sense of conviction to my life. Do any of you right now have any unfinished projects that you're trying to work on? Right? Right? For me, I, th- I think of my garage. Uh, we're able to get both of our cars into the garage, but around the edges of the garage, it's a nightmare. Right? Lots of junk. It needs organization. It needs cleansing. I'm going to get to it. I just don't know when. I have an office in my basement that is, well only way I can describe it is it's a total mess. I've got to deal with it. I just haven't done it yet. The day hasn't arrived yet. I'm waiting for the day, but unfinished tasks, unfinished business. But on the cross, Jesus said the words, it is finished. Now, in hearing those words, to the uninitiated, it might sound like, well, okay, that's, that's typical of anybody dying. It's, it's the end of his life. It's finished, it's over, I'm out of here, I'm dying. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm finished, as if my life is over. He's not saying, we're finished, as if to say, well, I've worked with you guys, with your disciples, followers of mine, these last few years, it's done now. No, he said, it is finished. What does he mean by that? What is the it? You should know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Add an important notation. It says, Jesus cried out, but it doesn't say what he cried out. Only John records that he said, it is finished. When he cried out, then he dismissed the spirit and he died. But Listen, these are not words of a victim, it is finished. These are words of a victor. This is somebody who's taken on this monumental task and has crossed the finish line and says, it's done. Well, we want to consider that single statement, and the single verse, I'm going to look with you, first of all, at the statement itself, and then at the speaker, and then the significance of the statement, okay? So the statement itself. if it's meaningful. It's three words in English. It is finished, but it's only one word in Greek. It's the translation of, the English is, of a single Greek word, to telestai. that means to complete, to bring to an end, to accomplish or to perfect, all of that is embodied in the word. It's difficult for us to really realize the full gist and depth of that word. So I want to take us back in history a little bit and uh, tell you four different ways that that word was used in Jesus' day and the groups that used them, right? There were four different groups that used the statement, and I think we can see through those groups how fitting it was for Jesus to say it. First of all, servants used the term. In a day of slavery, you know, thousands of years ago, when the servant did a task, was given a task, accomplished something that the master had directed him to do, uh, he or she would go back to the master and give the announcement to Telestai. In other words, master, I've done everything that you've told me to do. I brought an end to the job that you handed me. It's accomplished. It's done. How fitting, then, that Isaiah the prophet on four different occasions, predicted that Jesus the Messiah would be God's ultimate servant. He speaks about the servant of the Lord who accomplishes the task of the master. Even Jesus himself, when he comes on the scene in the Gospel of Mark, he announces this. The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many even when he was a little boy, 12 years of age, at the temple. The rest of the family leaves. He stays at the temple about, I don't know how far they got before they realized he was not there. They had to depart from the caravan, go back to Jerusalem. He's getting questioned, and his response is this to his mother. Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? I'm like a servant on a mission accomplishing the will of the master, saying, it's done, it's finished. So servants used it. Second, priests used this term. You know, if you and I lived a couple of thousand years ago, uh, there was a temple or tabernacle. If you wanted to bring an animal for sacrifice and you had the money, you couldn't just get any old animal. You couldn't say, okay, there's this stray cat that's wandering around our property. Or in my case, there's a groundhog under my shed out back, right? Let, let's go get that rascal Take it to the temple and sacrifice it. I've always wanted to get rid of a thing. It couldn't be done. No, no. First of all, it had to be a lamb if you had the money. A male lamb without blemish. So you'd bring your lamb to the priest. The priest would thoroughly examine the lamb. He'd be looking for flaws, inherent or acquired. If they were flaws, he would say, uh, no way. no with this animal is going to be sacrificed. But if it were perfect, he would say the equivalent in aramaic or hebrew the equivalent of the greek to telestai it's perfect it's a suitable lamb. it's without blemish again how fitting that jesus would say to telestai peter wrote you and i are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold we were redeemed by the precious blood of jesus christ a lamb without spot without spot without blemish you know that even Jesus' enemies knew that he was perfect. You know that the Sanhedrin had to hire false witnesses to bring false accusations against Jesus because he had done nothing wrong. Even Pilate said several times, I find no fault in him. Even Judas Iscariot admitted, I have betrayed innocent blood. Third, artists use this term. Artists use the term to that When an artist or sculptor uh, was done, he or she would step back and assess the work that they had done. If all the color, if all the details were there, if all the finishing touches were done, the artist would exclaim, "To I! it's finished. The picture, the sculpture is totally complete." That was the idea. You notice something when you read the Old Testament? There are lots of details, lots of touches, lots of prophecies about the Messiah. Lots of shadows and ceremonies that hearken back to the, to the Messiah, how he's coming, what it's going to be like. But if you only read the Old Testament, you'll get the idea that something's missing. The picture is not totally complete. The Old Testament predicts something that had not yet come. But when we read the New Testament and Jesus steps into the picture, right now the picture gets completed. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not here to mess up the Old Testament. I'm not here to destroy the Old Testament. I came to fulfill everything that was said about me in the Old Testament to complete the picture. So now the picture gets completed. Okay, the fourth group, interestingly enough, merchants and bankers use the term telestai. Once you uh, paid your bill or your debt to the bank, or your loan, whatever, or to a merchant, they would give you a little sheet of paper that it would read at the top to telesty. In fact, uh, you should know this. Archaeologists and scholars have found papyrus documents for people who have paid off their taxes. Across the top of the papyrus, it would read to Paid in full was the idea. Your debt has been paid off in full. How fitting for Jesus to say that from the cross. lot of people don't know this, but I suspect most of you do. We are all debtors spiritually. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's an insurmountable debt to pay off. You and I can never fully pay it off. You and I are bankrupt because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus comes along and announces from the cross, paid in full. It's done to tell us "Die." So as a servant He's fulfilling the wishes of his master, his father. As a priest, he's offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. As the artist, he's completing the picture, and he's paying off in full our debt. The statement, very meaningful. It's finished. carries a lot of meaning, a lot of weight. Now we move to the speaker of the statement. It's finished. Here's what Jesus tells us by saying this. He was a guy. He was a man who lived with purpose. He lived with goals. He lived with priorities. He'd have made Jordan Peterson happy. <laughs> when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it's finished, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He lived with purpose, all right? And that goal comes out in so many other statements that he's made already in his life. Here's one. Another time when Jesus goes to Samaria, okay, Jesus goes to Samaria, where no right-thinking Jew would ever go. They would actually cross the Jordan River and go up the other side to avoid Samaria. He meets a woman at a well there and talks with her, which no right-thinking Jew would ever do. The disciples had gone into town to buy some food. They're on the way back. The woman has left. She's on the way back to the city, the town, to tell her friends and family that the Messiah might be just sitting out there by that well. You've got to come and check it out. The disciples arrive with some food. They, they know that Jesus is tired like they are. He had to sit. He could not stand at the well. He was sat. He was, tired. he was exhausted. And they say, uh, okay, we got something for you to eat. Here's some food. You ought to eat it. Jesus responds this way. I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And they look at each other like he's crazy. They says, what, is, what, what does this mean? Did, did somebody give him a falafel, a hamburger? What's, what's going on here? What does this mean? What happened while we were gone? And then Jesus explains himself, as he often had to do with the disciples, for my food is to do the will of him who sent me, and notice, and finish the work. To do it and to finish it. That's living with purpose. Jesus says, I have a goal. I'm on track. I am going somewhere. I'm headed someplace. I'm living by priorities. I'm going to finish the task. Fast forward to John 17. John 17. We looked at that depth. uh, We looked at depth of prayer that Jesus has in that whole chapter. You might remember that Jesus lifts up his eyes and he says, "Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do." He knows he's right at the end. Right? It's 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 the night before. He's it's the night he's arrested. He's got hours left to live. Everything the Father has given him to do. He is now anticipating the end of it. And on the cross, he completes the mission, finishes the work. So it's not really a surprise when Jesus says in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. He lived and moved and spoke with purpose. He had goals in mind, and now he proclaims it's finished. I've got several books in my library at home, dealing with setting goals and how to achieve success in life or whatever. And interestingly, most of the books just kind of uh, retread the sort of basic theories, right? Most of the books contain the same basic idea. If you want to be successful in life, the authors say, you first set a goal, right? Then you develop concrete steps to achieve the goal, then you objectively evaluate your progress along the steps along the way, right? So I was thinking about this, this whole philosophy of achieving your goals or goals. I stepped back and thought, okay, man, how different this is from Jesus. I mean, I mean, yeah, he had goals, okay. And he had the steps to get there, and he evaluated those steps, I'm sure, along the way. But how different Jesus was. Because Jesus' whole life and goal and purpose was not for self. It was not, it was not self-centered. It, it, purpose was not for self-aggrandizement, but for the Father. It was all about pouring his life out for others according to the will of the Father so that at the end of his life, he could say, it's finished. And this led me to a question. You know, if you've been here for a while, I ask a lot of questions when I'm pouring over Scripture. My question we hear about here was this. how How can anyone say it is finished after three and a half years of ministry? Three and a half years. That's a very short span. I mean, Spurgeon spent 38 years in the church in London. How could Jesus do everything he's supposed to do in three and a half years? But after three and a half years, as he hangs on the cross, he says, it's done, it's finished. Everything, Father, you've given me to do, I've accomplished. Now, I grant you this. Jesus did a ton of wonderful things. He healed many people. But for every person he healed, there were probably hundreds if not thousands, of unhealed people. There were still broken lives and broken bodies throughout all of Israel, let alone the world. So how can you, Jesus, say at the end of three and a half years, I've done it all? Well, here's how. Because he said, I've done everything you have given me to do, Father. This is what you called me to do. Here is my goal. Here's my priority, and that's it. So the goals he was after, was accomplishing, were the the goals that were given to him by his father. And he evaluated those goals in light of eternity, not the temporary. Boy, I tell you, if we could just grab a hold of that, there's real freedom. What has God called you to do? We're still early enough in 2024. Still a good time to ask yourself, what are my goals this year? What are my goals in life? How is that spiritual goal thing working out for you? How is seeking first the kingdom of God going for you? What are your goals? What are you pursuing? Is what you're pursuing worth it? And what are you going to do when you achieve those goals? I read a statement by Louis Sperry-Chaper, who was a one-time president of the uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. He said he had a really close friend, who has chased so many insignificant things in life. He said that the guy reminded him of a bulldog chasing a freight train. And his question was, what's that dog going to do if he ever catches the train? (laughs) What's the dog going to do when he catches the train? Attack it? When you achieve your goal, what then? Is it worth the pursuit? I guarantee you, if you have the right goals, God's goals for your life, the pursuit will be well worth it. Okay, finally, I want to look at the significance of the statement. The significance is actually kind of wonderful. We still haven't really answered the question we asked at the beginning, which is, what's the it that is finished? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. First, Jesus' suffering is about over. It's about coming to an end. Man has done his worst. Jesus betrayed him. Most of the disciples abandoned him. Peter said three times he didn't even know who he was. They beat him often during those trials all night long, put a crown of thorns on his head. They flogged him until he was near death. They nailed him to a cross. All of that sorrow is about over. In a few moments, he'll be cradled in the arms of his father. The second thing that's finished is the Old Covenant. Did you know that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament predicted, anticipated the New Testament? In Jeremiah 30, Old Testament, God says this, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with my people. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Oh, God has taken away the first covenant that he might establish the second one. That's the new test, that's the new covenant. So the old covenant is finished. And not about you, but I'm kind of glad. I'm very glad, and you should be too. Because when you read the Old Testament, right, without the grace. Because that's what it says in John chapter 1. For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When you read the law of the Old Testament, it's like looking at a policeman with his finger pointing at you. You know, oh, you were going too fast. You didn't make the turn correctly. You were texting as you drive. Now, not that I do that, but some of you might still do that. We read the Old Testament, and what do we find? We find, you shall not do this. You shall not do that. You must do this. You must do that. The law is there to watch us, to spy on us. And the law is poised to condemn us. It just sits there waiting to proclaim, Ah, you have not kept God's perfect standard. Listen, the law of God doesn't flatter anybody. It just tells you the straight-up truth. And it says, basically, you and I are a mess. You and I are sinners. You and I are hopeless. So the very law that points out our sin has some real problems. Here's the problem with the law. The law has zero power to do anything about our mess. The law is like a bathroom mirror. It can show you that your face is dirty. But the mirror does not reach out and clean your face. It has no power to do that. It just simply says, here's the truth about you. You're dirty. So I'm so glad the old covenant is done. It's finished. You ever met somebody who, who says, well, I, 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 just, I just live by the Ten Commandments. Those are, these are great conversations, by the way. Okay, really, really, you live by the Ten Commandments. So you're telling me that you, you have not broken any of the Ten Commandments. Well... Well, I mean, I've broken a few of them. I've lied here and there. I stole something when I was younger. I mean, I've broken a few things. I've taken the Lord's name in vain a few times. But I've never murdered anybody. Fine, but you've just admitted that you're a lawbreaker, that you've broken some of the Ten Commandments. Because the Bible tells us that if you've broken one law, you might as well have broken all of them, because, because the law says that you're guilty of all of them. You say you live by the Ten Commandments, you just don't keep the Ten Commandments. <laughs> then I've had people say, well, you know, I'm, I think I'm really, really good at talking my way out of things. And I figure, you know, I've done my best, I've tried my best, I've tried my hardest to do good. So I, got, I just kind of figure out, I trust myself to be able to, if I'm standing face to face with God, to have him see my things my way. <laughs> I'm going, I don't know how about you, but that that is a horrible plan. (laughs) Horrible plan. Okay, the third thing is finished, is this. The ushering in of the new covenant of grace and truth. Now, the Old Testament doesn't leave us without hope, because it actually predicts this Messiah who's going to come, and that all starts back in Genesis 3.15. This Messiah is promised. He's going to come and save us. The rest of the Old Testament gives us increasingly more and more details about this coming Messiah and what he's going to do, and people living through the Old Testament times who read this stuff and believed that this Messiah is coming and placed their faith in him are going to be saved. The only problem was that the payment for that sin that they're committing in the Old Testament hasn't arrived yet. But when Jesus dies on the cross, that faith goes into action and they're saved. But it happened on the cross. And that brings us to the fourth and final thing, to the center of what Jesus meant when he said it's finished, Our redemption. Our salvation is completed. It's finished. Which means you and I cannot add a single thing to it. You can't improve upon it. It's not really a joint effort. Jesus did it all. It's not like, well, God, you do your part and then I'll I'll do my part. You You know what your part is? Do nothing. Just believe. That's your part. They asked Jesus, What must we do to work the works of God? What Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. That's your part. Just believe Jesus has already done it all already. Years ago, a guy comes to an evangelist named Alexander Wooten, and he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? And Wooten said, too late. Too too late, buddy. The man was totally shocked. It's too late. What do you you mean? I can't do anything? Wooden said, no, it's it's too late. It's already been done. You can't do anything. It's all done for you. The only thing left is for you to believe that in Jesus, it's done. So let's wrap up verse 30. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I, I noticed something in this passage that I found peculiar, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know what? It's, it's a little bit odd, because I, th- I think that's different than how you and I would pass the scene, a little bit different than how you and I would die. If we, were, if we were standing up or nailed to something or sitting in a chair with our head erect, it would read this, well, Dwayne died, and then his head slumped forward. Once you die, your head would slump forward. Got nothing to hold it up, right? Not with Jesus. He bows his head, then he gave up his spirit and died. This tells me his head was erect the entire time. So I did a little investigation. The way the word is rendered in the original, it's Jesus put his head, he nestled his head downward. It wasn't a slump. He deliberately, slowly placed his head down. He says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word in Greek. For gave up his spirit literally means dismissed. He dismissed his spirit. So here's Jesus on the cross. He bows his head slightly. Everything's finished. And he says to his spirit, okay, you can go now. And in in reality, that sounds weird, but also in reality, it is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Here's what he said nobody, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. And here's Jesus laying it down, placing his head down and dismissing his spirit and dying. So here's the deal. God's really good about something. Everything he starts, he finishes. He's not like me in my garage or me in my office. God finishes everything right on time. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You ever thought about joy and a cross being in the same sentence? You know what the joy was for Jesus? Being able to say to you and me, you are forgiven by your faith in me. Come, and hang out with me for eternity. That brought him joy. And maybe the first taste of that for him was when he said to the guy next to him, the the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Talk about having, being in the right place at the right time. That guy got it, right? But listen, although for Jesus, it's a finished work, there are people all around, maybe even people in here, who still have unfinished business with God. And God has given to us the author of forgiveness. Maybe the only thing missing is that you haven't received it yet. God has given us the gift of eternal life, and maybe you haven't personalized it yet. What Jesus did is finished, but maybe you just have unfinished business with God. Let me end this with a true story. Well, dating all the way back to 1830. No, I was not alive then. Nope. I'm older, but not alive that old. George Wilson was a guy who was convicted of murder. He was uh, robbing of U.S. mail, Uh, with a bunch of other people, he ended up killing a federal worker. He was arrested and sentenced to execution by hanging. That's how they did it then. So some of his friends appealed to President Andrew Jackson to pardon Wilson. To the shock of almost everybody, President Jackson signed his release. He wrote with his own hands that the man was pardoned and was free to go. But George Wilson refused to accept the pardon. So President Jackson turns to the Supreme Court to render a decision. Chief Justice John Marshall put forth a judgment that would become historic. John Marshall wrote this, A pardon is a deed, D-E-E-D, and for it to be valid, it must be delivered and accepted. In other words, a pardon has no value if it is refused by the person to be pardoned. And Jesus is willing to say, it's finished. But not everybody is willing to accept it by saying, I believe. So look, if that happens to be you today, just believe by faith in what Jesus has already finished for you. So let me pray for us. We'll take communion. Go ahead and bring it up while I'm praying. And we'll do that together. God, thank you for this word, this one Silly little s- sentence. It is finished. It's not so silly after all, is it? Deep meaning. And what you accomplished was magnificent on our behalf. You didn't do it for you, you did it for us. So as we take communion, we acknowledge that your life, your blood, your sacrifice made all the difference. We're not making any difference, we're a mess. We're going to continue to be a mess unless you step in and do something for us. Boy, um, it's amazing how much your act on the cross tells us how much you love us. Because only you love that deep would make a sacrifice that expensive. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for what you're doing in us. Thank you for your care for us. Thank you for being here. Thanks for sending the Holy Spirit so we can have contact with you. Thanks for your love for us. Thanks for being a member of your family. Thanks for calling us brothers and sisters adopted by God as his children. Thank you for that. As we predict this, maybe you will get a hold of us and have us walk this week, maybe a little bit differently than last week. Pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.